Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. On this episode, I'm joined by filmmaker Eric Stange to discuss his latest film, Pony Boys, which is now streaming online as part of the New York Times OpDoc film series. About a dozen years ago, Eric had a conversation with a neighbor of his in Arlington, Massachusetts. The neighbor told him that another neighbor, Jeff Whittemore, had related a story that seemed impossible to believe. In 1967, when Jeff was nine, he and his 11-year-old brother Tony left their home in Needham, Mass in a homemade two-wheeled horse cart being towed by a tiny 10-year-old Shetland pony named King and made their way alone on a 27-day, 350-mile journey to Montreal to attend Expo 67. This was a story Eric Stange just had to tell. Pony Boys is just the latest entry in Eric's impressive filmography. As a documentary filmmaker who specializes in history and science films for the likes of PBS, National Geographic, and the BBC, Eric has produced and directed films such as Edgar Allan Poe, Buried Alive, Unnatural Causes, Is Inequality Making Us Sick, The War That Made America, and Murder at Harvard, among many others. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum, from providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs. Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please follow and share. Now on to my conversation with Eric Stange. Hello, Eric Stange. Welcome to Making Media Now. Thank you. Great to be here, Michael. Really good to be speaking with you, particularly about Pony Boys. Congratulations on your latest creative accomplishment. Uh, how did this story come to you? Well, about 10 years ago, I was at a neighborhood barbecue and a, a neighbor across the street asked if I had ever heard the story of another neighbor's childhood adventures, a, a mutual friend and neighbor. And I said, no. And uh, she told me, well, you ought to talk to Jeff one of these days. Ask him what he did in the summer of 1967. And so the next time I saw Jeff Whittemore, who I, I didn't know well, but, you know, we're neighbors and see each other at neighborhood functions. So I said, I heard, I heard you have a good story to tell. And he told me with total modesty and sort of no recognition that this was all that unusual about how he spent he and his he was nine years old and his older brother was 11 and they spent the summer of 1967 driving a pony cart from needham massachusetts to montreal <laughs> yeah no big deal 67 <laughs> and, and you know of course i said well you mean with with your parents or your older brother or something and he said, no 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 just the two of us tony and me nine and eleven and um he said, my mother wrote ahead to the boards of selectmen to tell them we'd be coming through town and to watch out for us. And and we did it. And he at the time, and this was 10 years ago, he hadn't told the story for quite a while, at least not in much detail. And I don't think he could even remember exactly how long it took. He said, oh, I think it was almost a month. You know, it was all it was sort of a little dim in his memory. Um, 
And I told him, I've been a documentary filmmaker for a long time. And I told him one of these days, I'm going to come back to you and I want to make a film about this. And he laughed. He never really believed that I would do it. But about 10 years passed and uh, I did come back and and I interviewed him. He just lives four four doors down the street. So it's very easy to. Yeah, that makes it convenient. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, I'm, I'm never going out of the neighborhood again. <laughs> there, there's a strategy. <laughs> right. Just shoot everything in my living room. Yeah, well, it does cut down on the uh, location scouting. Oh, that's for sure. <laughs> Not to mention the wear and tear on my back and everything else. <laughs> so uh, he came over to my living room and sat down, and we did a long interview. And he told the whole story. And he had given me just before that, a couple of days before, he'd given me a family scrapbook that his mother had kept about the whole trip. So I was able to see a ton of newspaper articles and things. So, you know, I learned a lot about the story just from that. Sure. So I, I really wanted to hear his take on it. And it was a great, wonderful interview. And And what was best about it, really, in some ways, is that he really hadn't told the story to anybody in any depth for a long, long time. And so it was almost as if he was remembering a lot of the details just as we went. And then literally four days, five days after that interview, the world shut down with COVID. I mean, it was just at the beginning of March 2020. Um, And there I was with this 90-minute interview and the whole scrapbook, which was full of photographs and newspaper clippings. I couldn't leave the house, or I could, you know how it was. And um, so I decided, well, I guess I'll just edit with what I have. And it became my COVID project. And And how long after your conversation with Jeff did you have a conversation with Tony? Tony's the older brother. Well, after. I mean, almost a year later. Okay. Uh, and, and long, you know, mem- memory is an interesting thing. Um, how closely aligned were their memories of of the of the adventure? That's a good question, because there were definitely things that they remembered very differently. Yeah. And, um, you know, this was an oral history. It's not journalism. It's not academic history. So I have to confess that. I didn't always take the trouble to try to pin down exactly who was remembering it correctly. Sure. Um, If there was any real, you know, if it just seemed too weird one way or the other, I just left it out. But um, yeah, it didn't really affect the story much. I mean, they, they certainly were in agreement on all the important things. And, and how far into your consideration of the story were you before you decided on what your approach was going to be in, in telling this story? Um, you know, th- there's no voiceover narration. Uh, there, it's, it, I, I would say it's kind of low tech, which is kind of a wonderful, um, it's wonderful insofar as it, um, it really suits the time. Yeah. Yeah, well, I knew I wanted it to be as immediate as possible. And that's why I shot it with both of them looking directly into the lens. Yeah. Because I wanted to feel like they're telling the story to the viewer directly. not. Yeah, and that it most definitely does. Yeah. And then I I knew, well, I didn't know when I started that we were going to find this wonderful trove of newsreel footage shot by Associated Press in those days. The AP had a newsreel unit that went and spent some time with the Pony Boys. It took us a while to find it. Our archival film researcher, Heather Merrill, did an amazing job and found that footage. 
And we we all know there's got to be other footage, too, because as that trip got underway, it got a lot of press. And I'm sure there were other TV crews that went up and stayed with them for a day or two. They they have no real memory. They just know there were tons of reporters. <laughs> all the time. They don't remember specifics. Um, but, uh, yeah, we never found any other footage, but we did fortunately find I don't know. It's not that much. It's almost two minutes, maybe. Well, it, it, it feels like a lot more. And you, you kind of anticipated my next question, because when I was watching it, I was thinking, where's all this footage coming from? And and so what was the deal that somewhere in the so they start out in Needham, Massachusetts, their their goal is to get to uh, Montreal and Canada. As far as you know, did was AP sending a crew just along certain uh, legs of, of the trip to kind of capture the essence of the story? Yes, I think that's it. They they certainly didn't stay with them the whole time. The boys would have remembered. Yeah, yeah. The crew was around, and, and in fact, they didn't even remember that film crew. So I'm not sure how much time they spend. And I think a lot of the footage was shot from a van. Or a yeah, it's 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 so interesting that it, you would you know think it's such a formative experience. You know, two brothers, and it wasn't like they were six and four, you know, they were, they were 11 and nine at the time. And it's kind of hilarious in the, in the film where they talk about, gee, I can't remember. Did I change my clothes? Uh, did I have shoes when we started? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and a lot of times in the interviews, when I'd ask them a question, they would just shrug saying, I don't know. I was nine. I have no, no memory of any of that. Or I was 11. I, I don't know. It didn't seem important, whatever the it was. I mean, they did remember quite a bit, but there were plenty of things they had no memory of at all. And their mother, the, the boy's mother really comes through as the um, sort of the unsung hero or perhaps the semi sung hero <laughs> of the film. Uh, I believe it's Tony who says that uh, she ended up having the most effect on them being who they became. Uh, that's I'm, I'm paraphrasing that. But um, t- tell me a little bit, bit about the boys relationship with their mom then and the, and the impact on how that influenced them thereafter. Yeah. Um, unfortunately she's passed away. I, I would have loved to be able to talk to her. I've talked to all the siblings or all but one in the family. They're, they're five kids and, and they all talk about how their mother was just this adventurous person who really believed that learn by doing as the older sister Wendy says in the film and they had all sorts of adventures I mean this probably was the most I don't know out of the ordinary adventure that they had but they did other things too Um, and and the mother just encouraged that sort of attitude and as Wendy says in the film their father was maybe not quite as (laughs) on board with it but he would go along with it and they, they learned an awful lot from her or from those experiences. And I think they brought it to their own parenting practices as well. I mean, both Tony and Jeff have two kids of their own. Uh, of course, I had to ask them both, would you have let your nine or yeah. 11 year old do this? Yeah. Neither one would say yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think both of them would say, well, even if we did, I doubt that my wife would. Uh, allowed it to happen. So, you know, it's, I know it's interesting when I, when, when I was watching the film, you, you know, um, my kids aren't that age any longer, but once upon a time they were and, you know, thinking, would I have let them do that? And 
I always have found as a parent, I know you have kids, uh, I always have found as a parent that there's so many things that you're cautious about letting your own kids experience. And then you think back maybe to your own youth and a lot of the stuff that you were doing unbeknownst to your parents. And so I'm wondering whether is that just sort of the parental mindset that kicks in or is there any validity to feeling like, well, you know, that was a safer time relative to today? Yeah, I, I have pondered that a great deal, too. I mean, I feel like in many ways things would be safer today. Certainly that trip. I mean, if you can imagine that trip now, both kids would have had cell phones. There would have been a blog. Right. Um, they probably would have had trackers injected in their skin. <laughs> they would have had sponsors. Right. They would have had sponsors. The ponies certainly would have had a chip. Um, you know, they, they would have been tracked by satellite every foot of the way. So how could it be be any more dangerous or or less safe than it yeah. was back then? Um, and yeah, we'd like to think of things as being safer and more easygoing. I don't know that they were. I think there probably a lot of awful stuff happened back then that we never heard about. Yeah. It was in 24-7 news. Yeah. So who knows? I Both boys have this, um, I call them boys, men, of course, now in their 60s. They, they both have this really optimistic, intrinsic view of human nature being a good thing. I mean, not just from that experience, but partly from that trip where they learned that people are good, people are generous, people yeah. will go out of their way to help you, as yeah. everyone did on that trip. Everywhere they went, people were helping, helping take care of the pony, making sure the boys were fed, giving them sandwiches to take on the trip, um, meeting them as they came into town to make sure they knew where to go to have a place to stay. I mean, they they said they were the two safest kids in America. <laughs> they, were, they had a very easy time of it. And we would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about about their means of of transportation. Uh, that would be via King, the Shetland Pony. Um, it, his his role, of course, was a, was a huge role. And I found it really interesting that even then uh, there was a bit of a controversy over whether this was uh whether King was being subjected to uh, treatment that he, he maybe shouldn't have been. Yeah, there there were a lot of letters coming into the house, uh, which the kids weren't aware of because they were off on the trip. But right. her sister, Wendy, and the father and, and the mother were getting these letters, a lot of them complaining that they were abusing the pony, that, that no one should make a pony do that kind of work. Shetland ponies were bred, still are bred, I don't know, for... Um, hauling coal out of coal mines mm-hmm. that's why they're bred they're bred small and strong yeah hauling a very small pony cart with two quite small boys was not a struggle and for king and king was examined right before they left needham then he was examined again in southern new hampshire and i think i, I think i recall he was examined at when they got to montreal yeah or soon after they crossed the border because they were bringing livestock into Canada. I think you had to have some kind of vet examination for that. And he passed with flying colors every time. They, The boys had been taught. Part, part of what they did before the trip was months of preparation for all sorts of things, including taking care of King, making sure to keep his hooves clean and 
knowing how to trim the hose. I, I don't know if they trim them, but knowing how to look for any signs of of uh, injury or anything and grooming King and making sure King had the right diet and enough water and all that. They were on top of it. Yeah, it's interesting. You don't, and maybe it was different then, but when I think of Needham, Mass, so for for listeners outside of the uh, greater Boston uh, area, Needham is a suburb of of Boston, and it's probably I don't know ten or twelve miles outside of Boston, but it's you know it's it, it's a big suburb, and I would say it's you know it's very mixed use. Um, I wouldn't have thought of it even in 1967 as being a place where you know you typically had a Shetland pony in the backyard. Yeah, their house was, I mean, we probably all have known families like this where kind of anything went, you know, (laughs) partly because they had a kind of big old rambling house. I think they had a barn uh, and maybe an acre, acre and a half of land. So it was the suburbs, but Needham had been farmland, of course, until recently. And, And so they were still, they still had a piece of an old farm, I guess. And, and, uh, they had other animals too. I don't think they had any other big animals, but okay. they had plenty of, of pets of all kinds. And well, not to reveal any any spoilers, but I, I was very happy to learn that not not only did King. Uh, uh, make the journey with flying colors. He went on to live another 20 years thereafter. Yeah. Yeah. He had a a very busy life Uh, all through Jeff, the younger brother was nine at the time of the trip Uh, all through Jeff's teenage years. He and King would go do birthday parties on weekends. (laughs) And that was Jeff's summer job and even weekends during school. Uh, So yeah, King kept very busy. Any idea how long King's notoriety uh, was maintained? Good question. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not sure if Jeff billed him as the pony who went to Montreal or not. Yeah. I think it was just a pony, a pony and pony rides. Because uh, as Jeff, well, I don't want to give it away either, but at the end of the film, Jeff does make the point that their celebrity didn't last all that long. Sure. Yeah. And and it's almost impossible to watch the film too. And once again, uh, you know, not be thinking about if this were happening today. And, you know, you mentioned in terms of, you know, the, the boys would have cell phones and they would be, they would be tracked. And, and and when you talk about the people that wrote the letters, you know, uh, protesting whatever they thought about, uh, what might be happening with King? When you think about it back then, first of all, they would to have they would have had to have seen the story someplace, right? And it wasn't like there was twenty four seven cable news then, so they had to have seen the, the the story on their local news channel or some AP story in a paper. Then they would have to sit down and write a letter of protest on behalf of King, mail that letter, and it is really sort of fascinating. And I was I, as I was watching it. I was thinking if this were happening now, there would be pro and con Twitter fights, you know, about this. There would be, I'm sure, you know, TikToks of people giving their thoughts on on what the boys should or shouldn't be doing. And, you know, the the benefit of not getting an immediate reaction to posting an opinion or sharing an opinion actually does come through in the sentiment of the piece. Yeah, I'm glad you say that. It's interesting looking at the letters, and I didn't read all of them, but I read a big chunk of them. Um, 
some of them people that they got more than one letter from some people because the trip went on for four weeks and it was in the paper practically daily. Yeah. In fact, daily, I think, in the Boston Globe. And and the letters to the editor's pages, there was a lot of back and forth. Uh, a Boston radio station, I think, had an editorial very much opposing the trip early on and then did a second editorial toward the end saying, you know, we were wrong and we <laughs> this trip was really actually a good thing. <laughs> so, I mean, some of that happened because there was enough time. But you're right. It would have it would happen within hours now. Right. But, uh, yeah, it just, um, you know, it, pe- people were fascinated. And what's what's interesting, too, is the letters uh, when you look at the envelopes, because, of course, no one publicized the street address of the family. So when you look at the letters, they're addressed to the parents of Tony and Jeff on their way to Expo, <laughs> Needham, Massachusetts. And, and it found its way there. The letters got there. And, uh, yeah. So we know how King and the boys got to Montreal. I wasn't clear on how they got home. Yeah, it's it goes by fast. And it was too complicated to explain. (laughs) There's a little bit of a headline that says arriving home by truck. What happened is the family that ended up putting them up in Montreal was a farm family. They stayed usually on farms because it was just outside of Montreal. And the farm family very had had a dump truck and they rigged up the dump truck to be a a, um, pony truck. And they drove... uh, King and Tony, the older brother, home. I I mean, you know, the trip up there took 27 days. The trip back, of course, took probably six hours. Yeah. yeah. And so Tony just stayed in the in the dump truck with King. For the home. <laughs> Jeff got to fly home. He'd never been on an airplane before. But by the time they got to Montreal, they were famous. And a bank had stepped in to sponsor the whole family to fly up to Montreal and join the kids. And then the bank flew them all home. Do you know if 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 your film is the first time that their story has been dealt with so expansively? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, there hasn't been any other big, big uh, coverage of it. I, I would have found it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And they would have remembered, too. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Tons of press at the time. And then the Boston Globe at one point, about three or four years later, ran a little where are they now and had and and. um reenacted a photo of the two boys on either side of King, the boys as teenagers, which was kind of cute, but it was just a paragraph. of Yes. How did, how how did your film find its way um, uh, to the New York times, the op docs? How does, how does that relationship work? Well, we, we submitted it. I mean, they have a submission process online. Um, Someone involved uh, with the, the film, Kind of knew someone there, which okay. may or may not have helped. But um, it's uh, it was really about um, going through the process, and I, I think I mean who knows? Who knows these things? You know, so much it's luck, it's timing. You know, maybe if we had submitted it a week later, it wouldn't have hit that moment. Right. But I think they they must have been looking for something that was kind of light and yeah. It, it, it was around the back to school time. Um, yeah. You know, these things, it's like you cross your fingers and you hope for the best. Have you been uh, going on in a regular interval and reading the comments? Oh, yes. 
Yeah, I love the comments. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, I was just on there. So I watched the film a couple of days ago and then I went back just before you and I started to chat and I was checking the comments. There's hundreds and hundreds of them. I think 389. <laughs> yeah. Because they shut it down. I was watching it, hoping it would get to 400, just because that's a nice round number. Sure. And then for some reason, they closed it at 389. But oh, that's, 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 that's interesting. And do they give you a, a, a definitive sense of how long it'll be accessible as, as part of the OpDocs program? Well, I think it's up there for the foreseeable future. They oh, they, they archive them all, and yep. it gets a little harder to find as time goes on. You have to search in their little search window for OpDocs. Yes. But that'll take you to the whole page of OpDocs, and there are a lot of great films. And, and even so if you're not a New York Times subscriber, you can still get a certain number of uh, articles that, that they let you read and don't tell them you heard it here, but if you clear your cash, you can actually double up on that sometimes. Oh, <laughs> also, the OpDocs uh, page doesn't have a paywall at all. But, oh, that's great. So I think, you know, you can do it even if you have read some articles, but uh, I think you have to sit through a short ad. Yeah. And the, the, that's more than more than worth the trade off. So in addition to uh, making Pony Boys, Eric, you, you you've had a uh, uh, quite a substantial filmmaking career going back decades. You you run uh, Spy Pond Productions. Uh, am I accurate in saying that most of the documentaries that you've made are in the area of health and science and in, in terms of telling those those types of stories? Um, somewhat. But history also, and science, I should say. Yes. Yeah. History, history and, and health and science and sort of cultural history, sometimes political history. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The most recent PBS film I did was called Edgar Allan Poe Buried Alive. Yes. Biography of Poe that was on American Masters. And uh, before that, two films about the history of modern Germany, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the period right afterwards. So a variety of things. Um, and you covered a, a, a murder at Harvard, which told the story of an 1849 uh, murder, wherein a uh, Harvard Medical School professor murders a, uh, a, a benefactor of the, of the college and also a, a film on the uh, French and Indian War, the war that made America. The Edgar Allan Poe piece, you actually so you cast actors and and directed those actors. What was that that experience like? Um in comparison to working with archival material and just, you know, interviewing experts uh, or people who were removed from the actual events. Yeah, I mean, so that was the third film that I've done that uh, you mentioned the other two, Murder at Harvard and the French and Indian War film, mm -hmm. uh, Made America. Both of those had actors, too. Um, the Edgar Allan Poe film, so that was my third outing into that world of um i call it dramatized documentary sure i like the term reenactment yeah it really is an attempt to to have drama that's based on the written record that's based on on real evidence and that's not fictionalized and so the the words that the actors say are actually from documents that they, mm -hmm. they wrote or someone else said they said um it's it's fun. I have to say it's fun. It's scary. It's really scary as hell because it's 
obviously more expensive. Um, you have to really, really plan things out. I mean, what part of what drew me to documentaries in the first place was that sort of fun of standing by and watching things happen and not interceding, not interfering. And yet when you're shooting drama, it's exactly the opposite. I mean, yeah. you've got to make sure that the person hits his or her marks exactly as they enter the frame. And you've got to make sure that they turn exactly into the light. And you've got you know, all these things that are just the antithesis of, of documentary. And yet uh, the way I try to do it anyway is to somehow make it still feel in some way like a documentary. Is there any type of, or was there any type of particular preparation that you did uh, for that in terms of, uh, you, you know, you just said, uh, you know, your actors are, are going to be moving. They have to hit a mark, that mark relative to the best lighting, to the to the camera angle that's being uh, that's being used. So you're you're using different parts of your filmmaker's brain at that point. Yeah, I, I counted on help from a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and actually, if you were to interview my wife, she would tell you a funny story. Murder at Harvard, the first one I did with actors. The night before the first day of shooting, she saw me reading a book called How to Direct Actors. <laughs> <laughs> Better late than never. Late. Said, Are you sure you're up for this? <laughs> just just don't let anyone, anyone on the set see you with that book. Yeah, right. Fortunately, that's a long time ago. Well, your wife is the wonderful Barbara Costa. I had the I had the pleasure of working with Barbara on some projects years ago at GBH. So she's always, always loved working with Barbara. I know she feels the same way about you. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. As you look back at all of the uh, the films that you have made over your career, is it possible to find any um, commonalities between the types of stories you're drawn to telling? Well, I've always been interested in families and, and um, family dynamics and relationships. And so um, one of the first films I made was about an American communist family, a very prominent American communist. He was head of the American Communist Party in the 50s and 60s. And I knew his son uh, from an actually an even earlier film I made about children of communists. And so, you know, that, that kind of thing's really interested in what was that like to grow up in a family where the, the family business is communism and the father ended up spending five years in prison for being a communist. And, and then um, uh, other times, uh, other films, I've always tried to get in into the emotionality of the subject, if not through family relationships, at least through some other kind of of, of emotional sense of being connected. So even when it's about history, I, I'm trying to get people to talk about what it, how it affected them personally, how it changed their lives, how it, how it affected their families' lives. So when I did a film about the Berlin Wall and, and how, what led to the fall of the Berlin Wall, I was searching for people who would talk about it on a very so personal emotional level, how they mm -hmm. got involved and why and and the price they paid for for becoming um, activists and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I'd say it's it's trying to make uh, the political personal, trying to find the political dynamics of family relationships and and how they connect to the outside world. 
And I know that uh, Pony Boys has uh, been featured at a lot of film festivals recently. In fact, it was up at the Newburyport Documentary Film Festival uh, just just a few weeks back. And as we mentioned earlier, it's available right now via the uh, New York Times OpDocs feature. Um, Is there any plan for a broadcast or a streaming version of the film? Well, the New York Times uh, will has exclusive rights to stream it for the next month, and then okay. they'll continue to stream it. So it'll be available there for the foreseeable future. It's still having a good festival run. It's going to be in Globe Docs, the Boston Excellent. Globe Festival. Uh, and we have a, several other festivals coming up, uh, New England Mystic Film Festival in Connecticut, and then some Festival Chagrin in Ohio, other festivals around the country. And yeah, there may be another broadcast possibility yep. after the New York Times period has run. And speaking of festivals, I do happen to know also that your film will be will be shown as part of the Boston International Kids Film Festival uh, on November 19th um, of this year. So, Eric Stange, thanks so much for your time. This is it's been great to catch up with you and talk to you about this really delightful short film called Pony Boys and uh, urge everybody to check it out on the New York Times Op Docs uh, section uh, of their of that website. Um, this has been fun. It's been great, Michael. Thank you so much. It's, it's been a real pleasure. 